0: Previously on the Sick Invite Podcast.
1: Until that point of going to the hospital, I was going to the rehearsal every day with like 103 fever and like I was like, I'm fine, even though like I'm like dripping sweat. I'm like, oh my God, am I gonna crop my pants on stage right now? I'm
2: like. You are now listening to the Sick Invite Podcast with Kayla Herb and Ricky Crimes.
0: Hello, my name is Kayla And I'm Ricky Grimes. And this is the Sick and Bite Podcast, a storytelling show about all ailments. Big or small, chronic or temporary, the Sick and Bite provides an inclusive space for you to share your story. What is wrong with you?
2: Uh, me? Nothing today, actually. I'm doing I'm doing fairly well. How are you doing today?
0: Uh, uh, I'm good. You know how I finished The Sopranos a couple weeks ago?
2: Yeah, you mentioned that.
0: So now I'm re-watching Breaking Bad. Nice, uh-huh. uplifting Film or yeah. a TV show to watch after?
2: Yeah, you always always watch always the positive stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like a little light television.
2: Who do you think is worse, a Walt or a Tony Soprano? Uh,
0: I think Walter White is worse. Yeah. Evil wise.
2: Yeah. Don't don't spoil anything.
0: I mean, they both kill a lot of people. Oh well. <laughs> Spoiler alert: They both suck.
2: This show is brought to you by KaylaHerb.com, where knit blankets, custom quilts, and other homemade items are available for purchase and custom order.
0: Do you like our show? Please tell everyone about it. Follow us, like us, and share our content at the Sick Invite Podcast. We also have some new merchandise available. You can check it out on thesickinvitepodcast.com.
2: We are also on Patreon. For $3 a month, you can get early access to our episodes and bonus content, which is mostly us talking about movies.
0: Or Walter Wright and Tony Soprano. Sure, sure. Please send us your story through our website. There's a form to fill out at the bottom of the page, and we will contact you with further information.
2: All right, so Klaus writes in, and he had some ideas. because He said he's working on his memoirs. His memoirs. Plural? Well, I think that's what you just call You don't know, say his memoir. say his memoirs. His memoirs. well maybe it's many I guess it depends on how long of a life which I think it'll be good because I'll actually know something about him if he actually finishes it but he was thinking of what he should call it and he was he would you know he was trying to think of a good name for his memoir you know so do you have any ideas of what he should call it
0: Uh, well how old is Klaus what does that matter how how big is this memoir? Is it his whole life? Is it one experience? How does it affect the title of the book? Well, I want to know what it's about. It's about his life. Well, is it whole life? I don't know. Is he 100? Is he what 19? What does that matter
2: to a title? I don't know. He he thought that maybe Klaus to the future was a good one. What? It's like a movie pun.
0: How is that a movie pun?
2: Well, he took out you know, Back to the Future.
0: That's not a pun.
2: Ever heard of it? What do you mean? He took out Back... And he added his name, Klaus.
0: That makes no sense at all.
2: What, well, he wrote the Klaus Diaries instead of the Vampire Diaries. The Klaus Diaries, which maybe a little too on the nose. Does that work? No. What about this? Klaus Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey. No. It's two thousand. He just added Klaus in the beginning of the phrase. Like it's, it's not space. It's. 2001 a space odyssey
0: yeah those are all stinkers he
2: could have said 2001 a klaus odyssey but he went the other way what about this klaus of the caribbean
0: uh no
2: i'm sorry klaus is of the caribbean that's what it says here
0: uh, uh no okay
2: so you, you're just gonna shoot everything down or do you have any suggestions These are all stinkers well that's why you asked for suggestions you're a good namer uh,
0: big double thumbs down
2: but what about do you have any suggestions
0: no i i truthfully i don't want to hear about klaus's life at all
2: that's incredibly mean and i hope that he never hears this Which seems likely, since he's paid to produce the podcast.
0: Today we will be discussing sensitive topics including self-harm, suicide, and sexual assault. If you are not in the right headspace to hear these topics, please do not continue listening today. On today's show, we have Brianna Galena. So, Brianna, what's wrong with you?
1: Well, uh, I am diagnosed with bipolar 1 and PTSD
0: so let's start with bipolar 1 I've heard of bipolar disorder I've never heard bipolar 1 what does that mean
1: so bipolar disorder there's I'll say three classifications there's bipolar 1 bipolar 2 and an unspecified mood disorder so unspecified means that you don't really fit neatly into one or two um Bipolar disorder has two uh, symptoms it's manic and depressive. So, with bipolar 1, you have to experience a full blown manic episode that results in you being hospitalized at some point. Um, these symptoms of mania have to occur for at least a week or more and have to be significantly persistent and inhibit your ability to function uh, socially at work. Um, just in your day-to-day life for bipolar two you receive you go through what's called hypomania which is all the symptoms of mania of a manic episode but you don't go to the hospital for it you're not receiving inpatient psychiatric services and you have to have experienced at least one instance of a major depressive episode so um, that is the difference and so I fall under the criteria of bipolar one.
0: Now, are you a healthcare professional? Because that was a very professional answer.
1: <laughs> yes. So I, <laughs> okay. am a, I, I am a social worker. Uh, I, I graduated from Adelphi. Uh, I went to school with Katrina. That's how we okay. met um, <laughs> from episodes past. Uh, and I'm currently working at a local nonprofit as a child. Uh, I work with children as a therapist. Uh, I provide in-home counseling, so they're typically, um, they qualify for Medicaid, they can be in our program, and a lot of the, the issues that people who are low-income face is issues with transportation, with access um, in the mental health field, as I think has been talked about before, and if it hasn't, I'll say it can be very difficult to access services. Uh, very limited in what's out there often large waiting lists and so if you have issues with housing or transportation trying to get to someone's private practice can be nearly impossible so instead what my agency does is they say okay Brianna you know here's your caseload of 25 kids call make appointments and I'll drive to your house and I sit with you for 45 minutes to an hour and we talk about what's going on in your life and I do in-home therapy and I love it
0: wow that, well, I'm so excited to have you on because you offer such a unique perspective, both as a professional and as a person who experiences these issues, too. So thank you for coming on. Really yes. excited to hear Hi. now about you. Let's talk about you. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how did your symptoms start? When did you figure out that you had bipolar one?
1: So I was diagnosed at 14. But if you were to talk to my mother, she would tell you that I started showing signs at four years old wow yes so that sounds kind of crazy but when I was super young um, my mom describes it almost as if there was a switch that just sort of turned on Uh, I was a pretty normal happy child quote-unquote normal Um, up until that time where all of a sudden my temper tantrums were no longer just temper tantrums it was I was going into these tailspins Whereas let's say there was a situation that set me off where a typical response or an appropriate response should have been maybe on a scale of one to 10, should be like a two or three. I was coming at it like a 12 or a 13. So what I, what I would do is I would become upset. I would scream, kind of jump into this rage and I would run into my bedroom, lock my door and now... You know, I don't know if you've spent time with a four year old recently, but like they're scrawny like, you know, they don't they're (laughs) tiny. They're babies still. But at four years old, I would move my solid oak dresser that's full of clothes and toys and I would barricade it in front of my door. I kind of became like a mini Hulk and I would just get this this surge of adrenaline and I would go into my closet and I would kick and scream and they would have to take my door off the hinges And that sort of happened throughout my childhood up until I kind of reached more like um, middle school age. And that kind of started to taper off. And then I got into those like teenage years where then I was just more like verbally aggressive. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think part of that was also I, I was starting to be able to find words to describe what was going on in my head when I was younger, um, you know, at four or five, six years old, you don't have an emotional vocabulary to say, well, when you did this, it made me feel this, you know, and my brain, it was almost like my brain would sort of turn off, um, where it wouldn't work. It wouldn't allow me to talk. It was just this absolute void. And I dealt with it the best that I could. So that's kind of where it started. Um, but I was officially diagnosed at 14.
0: Now, is that unusual for symptoms to start that early in childhood, or do you think that's pretty common and people just don't really realize it just thinking that kids are having tantrums?
1: So it depends on the disorder. To diagnose a child with bipolar disorder is pretty serious. For a younger child, um, we don't give them a bipolar disorder diagnosis. We typically give them um, DMDD, which is... uh, depressive mood dysregulation disorder, right? Yeah. Don't hold me to that. I just remember <laughs> the acronyms cuz there's a lot going on in my brain. Um, but we'll diagnose them with something different, which is basically a precursor for a mood disorder like bipolar disorder. Um, but yeah, kids kids definitely do show signs of mental illness. They can at a very young age, but a lot of times it's too they're too young to call it. So, it's walking this very fine line of what is developmentally appropriate and what is abnormal or what is the extreme. Um, And I see clients as young as five years old. That's where our program starts. I go from five to 21. So I've seen five-year-olds that do exactly what I was doing when I was their age. Um, And it's kind of crazy to see that and be like, oh, so this is what my mom went through. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I... there, I think there's a more, I think now people are, and doctors in the healthcare field are starting to look at children more and sort of explore childhood diagnoses um, and, and treating them appropriately, but then there gets into a debate about, you know, is medication appropriate, are diagnoses appropriate because they're so young, their brains aren't forming, mm-hmm. so no one really wants to touch that discussion
0: yeah that could get complicated now how did your diagnosis journey go was this a quick thing that they knew immediately
1: so i was my diagnosis came about i was 14 i had i was in ninth grade um i was just a moody teenager but i was getting severely bullied in school and it got to the point of where I was missing school multiple days a week. Um, I was skipping classes to avoid these this group of kids. Um, it wasn't just me. It was a friend who was also in the class with me. So at least I wasn't like totally alone. But um, at some point, my mom and I were just arguing. And I was feeling super depressed because of other events that were going on in my life at the time. And I remember my mom and I got into an argument that I told her... She wouldn't care if I died and that I don't love her. And till this day, it, it kills me inside that I ever said that. Um, and my mom doesn't cry. And that was the second time in my life that I've ever saw her cry. Um, so after that, I had gone into school the next day. And I was talking with one of my guidance counselors about something. And I, she was just letting me word vomit. And it came out that I got into a fight and this is what I said. And she very casually was like, oh, okay. Kind of asked me very vague questions. And then she's like, oh, I have, I have a thing. Hold on one second. Um, and she left the room. Events ended up leading me going to the school psychologist's office, which is the most, hur- for anybody listening to this, please do not do this. If you are, if you're a clinician, if, if you're a school psychologist, you work in a school, don't ever do this. I got into the office. And it felt like I was an inconvenience. So I'm sitting there, and the school psychologist is sitting across me, and she said, So I hear you want to kill yourself. Lee. And I was like, What? I, okay. So then she says, Well, um, why? and I was so dumbfounded I said what do you like what do you mean why I don't know I'm 14 and I feel like my my life is complicated there's a lot of stuff going on I've never met you I'm just supposed to tell you all this okay so I didn't really tell her anything and then she said well uh do you harm yourself and I said uh yeah I've I've cut myself before which was very superficial for me um not you know I didn't really have access to a lot of things I was also very naive um where I had like scratch marks on my arm which scratching is a form of self-harm and I showed her and she laughed she scoffed like she was like huh and I all of a sudden I felt so small and then she said well do you have a plan like do you have a plan that you want to you know kill yourself and I said yes, which I did, and my real plan was that I had a bunch of different prescription medications at home, and I had done research, and I knew that if you took all of them, you would not wake up, and that that was what I would have done. But I realized as I was going to start saying that, I stopped myself, and I said, well, I'll just, I was going to take a bottle of Advil, Which theoretically would do severe damage to your body. It would just be really slow and painful. And that's not what I was going for at the time.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And again, she laughed in my face. So my advice to anybody listening is if you have a child who's coming to you saying that they want to die, don't laugh at them. That's possibly the worst thing you could ever do. Whether they're showing serious intent or not. Even if it's like just this very far off like thing. Because if I didn't want to kill myself before I went in there, I certainly wanted to after I left her office.
0: Yeah, I don't know a lot about nothing, but that,
1: Right. (laughs) even I know that's
0: not the right way to approach it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so um, for liability reasons from the school, they called my mom and they said, you know, your daughter is making these claims, come get her. You have to get a clearance from the hospital, get an eval, and it has to come back that she's okay, then she can return to school. So my mom worked about 25 minutes away from uh, my high school and she got there in seven minutes. She has no idea how she (laughs) got there. She doesn't remember it. She just, just showed up and she was hysterical. Um, She took me to Mather Hospital. And um, if you've ever been to a hospital that has like a psychiatric emergency room, it's always packed any day of the week, any time of the year, there's never a bed. It is always packed. So they had me on this like stretcher in the hallway with one of those um, sliding sort of makeshift walls in front of me. And I'm just sitting there freaked out because I I have no idea what's going on. Uh, But I met this really wonderful social worker there who total opposite experience. She was like, you know, tell me about what's going on. Very empathetic, really well, like great at listening. And she you know spoke to my mom she's like look i think she just needs she just needs help this isn't she's not trying to kill herself she just needs to talk to someone and so i got her name and it turns out she took our insurance and that was my therapist that i had started seeing for the the next 5 years of my life finding a psychiatrist who the who prescribes the medication totally different story it my mom must have called I dozens, dozens of offices and the wait lists for each office was about six months, three to six months out and there was one point where my mom was on the phone with the secretary and said I don't think you get this, this is literally life or death for my daughter and they're like well that's too bad like you just gotta wait so we ended up And, you know, I grew up with a single mom. She worked two jobs. Didn't really have a lot of extra money, but we ended up having to go with a private clinician who did not accept insurance. So it was $300 an hour to see her. Oh, my God. So that was – but we were able to get him right away, and that's really what I needed. And I saw her for – three or four years she was amazing very thorough we would start off our sessions with like basic talk therapy um she did an assessment I would go to her every two weeks in the very beginning um and be able to really talk to her so she got a sense of what was going on and she was the one who diagnosed me originally with an unspecified mood disorder because she felt I was too young to get a definitive bipolar diagnosis so she was amazing. I loved her, but it at, it got to a point financially where we I just couldn't couldn't afford to go see her anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we it took a while. We ended up finding someone within our insurance plan, but to compare them, whereas I was seeing this woman who is taking all this time and being very uh, thorough in her approach to finding someone who's now got. She has to see a patient every 15 minutes. I was in the door. Hey, how are you doing? Do you want to kill yourself? All right, bye. You know, like it's very rushed sort of, are you having any symptoms? And I just, it was like yes or no questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I was out the door. So there's a big difference between having to privately pay and what insurance will take and i'm not saying all providers that take insurance are like that but that has been my experience and i have switched psychiatrists a couple different times by now
0: yeah i the way you're saying it like especially with the school psychologist too you can kind of tell where it's like okay i gotta beat my quota or are you a liability no good great and rather than the people who took this career route to help people and who genuinely wanted to evaluate you and not evaluate are they going to get in trouble if something happens to you kind of thing um so are you how are you feeling now because this is years ago that this happened how has your journey been since diagnosis
1: um it has been rocky so like i said earlier with the with bipolar disorder you have cycles and you have rapid cycles um and for me the way that my experience with my disease is that I will go it's certain times of the year for me. So typically from I would say the end of September to about like Christmas time. Um I have a pretty elevated mood. I'm feeling really great usually. Like, life is good. I have that little kick of energy. I'm not fully manic. I would say I'm more hypomanic. Like, But not necessarily experiencing those symptoms as intensely. But it's definitely there. Um, and then after, like, from, I would say, mid-December, which was when I was hospitalized back when I was seven, 18. Um, right around that time, like that significant event. And then until about... March or April. No, February, March. Um, It's just sort of the slow decline mentally for me. So you guys caught me in the time where I'm on a slow mental decline.
0: (laughs) Um, Oh, goody.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, But no, so my cycles as far as my mood have sort of started to even out where they're much more predictable whereas when I first started my journey with my mental health it was trying to anticipate okay well what's what is next what's coming um where I needed a couple more trips to the emergency room just for you know supervision to make sure that I was okay because I was having intrusive thoughts or you know wasn't my medication wasn't you know on par at that point. I still needed adjustments to what I was taking and is this working? is that working? Let's up this, let's lower this let's give her this, let's take this away now, being that I've had this for eleven years now that i've I've had this diagnosis i am I've been on the same medication. I have a great psychiatrist who I work with that. Uh, is able to monitor that for me. I don't have to see someone monthly anymore. They can give me a three-month prescription and say, all right, I'll see you next time. And I'm also capable enough possibly because of my education, but I have really great insight to my illness and how I'm feeling. And I'll notice like, okay, I'm depressed, but I can use my coping skills and I can kind of work my way through this. Or, oh, no, I'm not functioning. I need to call my doctor and get a medication change because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and it's not working. So at this point in my journey, I'm very confident, very comfortable with myself and trust myself enough that I can seek out help when needed. Mm
2: -hmm. How much of your um, choice of uh, studies and career and stuff like that, was that influenced by your experiences with your diagnosis journey or... Was it vice versa or had nothing to do with it? You also happened to be interested in it? Or did, did the two intersect in that way?
1: So for most of my life growing up, I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I was convinced I was going to be a lawyer. I wanted nothing to do with uh, any type of mental health, psychology, social work, you know, anything like that. I had no interest in it um, until I, I went away my first semester of college And I had come home, and at that time after I had left, I had experienced really traumatic things in that first semester that caused me to come home, go into the hospital. And at that point, I realized, okay, I think I want to be a social worker. I want to help people who have been in my mental state and help them work through that. And the Mm -hmm. therapist that I had starting at 14 also helped influence that because as I was going through all these things, I realized, wow, I want to be that support system for a person. And I want to be empathetic and let them know that they're not crazy or that they're not make them not feel valued. So Mm -hmm. when I'm sitting in that psychologist's office at school, I felt like I was, you know, the size of an ant. I felt unheard. I felt like I was being laughed at like I was a joke. But when I was sitting in my therapist's office, I felt like I was worth something. And Mm -hmm. for someone who feels worthless every single day, having that recognition meant the world to me. Mm -hmm.
0: And probably your education probably helped you in the same way that it helps me. And it seems like from what you're saying is that even though you don't have control over this disorder but you you have a great understanding of it and you know what to expect because of the cycles so is that is that kind of what you were saying before because i feel the same way about my body i don't necessarily have control over it but when it does happen i know the drill
1: yeah so i right i i have no control over my illness i mean even though my cycles are predictable Um, there's still things, you know, life is unpredictable itself. I have no idea what could happen. For example, the pandemic shows up and I went into a tailspin. Was it the correct time of year? No, but that did not stop my mental health from saying, "Mm, let's ruin good things for Brianna. Um, (laughs) so it, you know, it's these events in life that we can't control that, you know, these outside influences on our life that we can't control that Causes me to say, okay, well, I'm coping with this to a point, but I also now understand my body. Like, okay, my brain's not doing what it's supposed to, and it's a weird thing to say that my brain knows that my brain's not working, but that's what it is.
0: Mm -hmm. You say the word um, manic a lot, and you know, I've heard that word. I think people throw it around kind of loosely with you know, saying maniac and things like that. How? would you describe what that is? Like how, what is your, what's, wh- what are you feeling when you're in a state
2: of mania? I was gonna ask that as well, yeah.
1: So when I'm manic, and again, this is my own personal experience, I feel like I'm on top of the world. I feel like I am untouchable. I have loads of energy and I feel like I can do anything. Realistically, I'll start something and I will never finish it. I will start 20 things and nothing will get done. I will stop sleeping. I have so much energy that I could maybe get three hours of sleep and I'm good to go. Whereas, if anybody who knows me, I have to have at least eight or nine hours under my belt. Otherwise, you don't want to talk to me. And I will also willingly take a nap in the middle of the day just to supplement that. But. So that's also a very clear-cut sign for me. But when I'm manic, it is a really incredible feeling. It feels good to be manic. It feels good to have that extra energy, that extra motivation. Usually I feel very confident in myself. I almost have this new sense of um, higher self-esteem that sort of comes out of nowhere. Um, And that's one of the indicators um, in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, That classifies a manic episode is this inflated sense of self, not sleeping, um, uh, feeling more talkative or having a pressure to talk, sort of that like social pressure. Um, Having uh, racing thoughts or flighty ideas where you don't really follow through with anything. Getting very distracted easily and most importantly risky behavior. Um, I don't really have risky behavior anymore anymore. Other than shopping, I do have a shopping problem, <laughs> and I'll admit that. But I also have a mild shopping problem even when I'm not manic.
0: Well, a credit but, card makes it so easy.
1: <laughs> right? <It's, laughs> look, I love pocketbooks. I love shoes. I'm willing to drop whatever it takes. But um, <laughs> there have been times in the past where a lot of my risky behaviors surrounded um, alcohol or um, risky sexual behaviors and stuff like that, whereas now it's more like, um, I'm gonna buy a fish tank. Why? I don't know, but I'm, I'm just gonna buy one, you know? Or, uh, like, I don't wanna call it a manic decision, even though we joke around about it, but like, a few weeks ago, I brought home a kitten, and my fiance was like, What is this? And I'm like, Surprise! <laughs> She's here! Yeah. He was, he loves her. Not very happy that I didn't really adequately run it by him, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are those are things that I'll do, and I won't think through the consequences. So I I won't adequately think. Okay, well, how are my decisions affecting or impacting others? So if I go out and I blow you know five thousand dollars on a shopping spray, how is that going to impact me and my fiance and our finances?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, financial risk is could be devastating as well. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because you know people joke about like retail therapy but it's not always good
1: (laughs) no it's really not
0: um and then the the kitten too um in the wrong hands that i mean you seem like you guys are loving pet people um oh yeah but that you know in the wrong hands that could be bad too so when you talk about being manic is this like when people say there's highs and lows of bipolar is that what you're talking about so you'll have this manic episode and then you're having like the low that you're experiencing now
1: yeah so with mania uh, I will have these highs this like sort of um, I'll have these highs or inflated feelings of my mood so my mood will be on a rise so that's my up of my cycle and then not necessarily directly following that like immediately after but tends to follow-up usually it's either a precursor or like an afterthought the low the major depression comes either before or after the manic episode so and during the depressive episode it's I mean I'm not getting out of bed I'm not showering I'm not brushing my teeth I'm not cooking dinner I'm not do I'm not doing anything I am barely functioning Um, in the past it was me calling out of work or not showing up to school skipping classes stuff like that because I physically couldn't get out of bed it was so severe that like I was thinking I wasn't even thinking about killing myself because I didn't have the energy to do it Mm -hmm. so um, for me it's just this this feeling of almost like imagine having the flu times 10 all the time just that you feel achy you feel tired you don't want to go anywhere you don't want to talk to anybody you just want to lay in bed under the covers and like melt into your sheets
0: mm-hmm. so what's interesting when you say that so my brain of physical illness goes like oh well that's mm-hmm. good Let well, you should get the rest you should have the you should take the day off but is that does that like enable you is it bad to actually take the time off and to take work off to rest or does that make your situation worse or is that different per person I guess
1: I think it's different per person for me personally there's a very fine line between self-care and falling deeper into my depression when I'm in a place kind of like now where I feel like I'm kind of in limbo like I'm doing really what I'm doing I shouldn't say I'm doing really well I'm doing well enough that I'm using my coping skills. I'm acknowledging that I'm starting to feel like I'm slipping down this slope, but very slowly. And if I need that nap at the middle of the day because I've had a really rough day at work, because mind you, my job is to work with kids who have severe mental illness. And a lot of times they're talking and it's very triggering to me because it brings up a lot of my own experiences. I deal with kids who have been through sexual abuse. Who are struggling with their mental health. And so for me I'm like oh wow that hits home real hard. I need to decompress. So maybe for me that that taking a nap is going to help me. And that's going to be beneficial to me. It stops being beneficial when all I can think about is getting back into bed. And shutting out the world. So... If I'm taking a nap in order to recharge myself and give myself time to regroup versus I'm taking a nap because I'm avoiding responsibility and talking to people and my day-to-day functioning, that's where the line is for me. So that's the difference between if it's a happy nap or a negative nap.
0: Mm-hmm. And just learning to identify which is which, which is mm-hmm. not easy to do. Now, but it seems like like you had talked about your education but it seems like you have a very great understanding of your condition and your specific condition do you is that something you learned on your own or was your mom very involved when you were a teenager too
1: so i have to say i'm super super lucky i have an amazing support system my family has always been very supportive my friends that i have opened up to and have shared about um, very supportive. I've actually only had one person in my entire life so far that has ever used my illness against me and insulted me for it. Um, and her and I are no longer friends because of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, I, my mom, has always been amazing. She's been my biggest advocate. She has gone to hell and back to make sure that I get the services, the proper medication. You know I'm 25 I'm living with my fiance. I'm, I'm working a full-time job I'm an adult for all intents and purposes and she'll still <laughs> call me and say did you take your meds this morning you know or I'll be napping and I'll wake up and I'll call her back and I'll be like mom I was taking a nap is it a happy nap Brianna are you okay <laughs> you know did you meet with Joanne this week my therapist you know it, you know I'll talk I'll complain to her about something that my fiance did and she's like well do you are you know is everything okay are are you mentally where are you know she checks in with me and and sometimes it's really annoying and I want to and I tell her like mom back off I'm fine <laughs> but at the same time I'm very fortunate to have someone who loves and cares about me enough to check in with me and say those things and care enough that she wants to make sure I'm okay um so yes my mom has always been my biggest advocate and she really has fought for me tooth and nail from the beginning i don't think that i would have been as successful in my journey if it wasn't for her
0: Mm -hmm. i'm so happy you have somebody like that and you had that experience because fortunately not a lot of people do so you said you have bipolar one what else did you say that you had in the beginning of this episode
1: I also have ADHD, which I didn't mention, but when I think of ADHD for me, it's more like a mosquito. It's just like a mild inconvenience to me. Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed when I was in third grade and basically I take Adderall and it just sort of helps me keep myself together. So if I don't take my Adderall, what should take me 30 minutes takes me like two hours. You know, it doesn't really impede my life. I still get stuff done. Um, But my other major diagnosis is PTSD.
0: Okay, do you want to talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. So when I was 17, I graduated high school. I have a late birthday. Um, And I decided I'm going to venture off into the world because I'm an adult now. And I could do whatever I want. And I need to experience life. So I applied to colleges that are as far away from home as I could possibly imagine. Um, So I get to college and it is a free for all because no longer do I have a mom who's like, Brianna, take your meds. Brianna, go to therapy. Brianna, take care of yourself. It's just me. So I end up partying a lot. I was drinking a lot and With the medication that I'm on, it's... You're not allowed... You're not supposed to. I have drank... I mean, I still have wine or, you know, a mixed drink, you know, during the week if I want or when I'm with friends. Um, But you're not supposed to, like, binge drink when you're taking the medication that I'm on. And I was binge drinking. So, in my... Again, in my brain, my brain said, Oh, Brianna, let's stop taking our medication so we can enjoy ourselves. So, Brianna stop taking her medication so she could enjoy herself, which that change, um, for myself and for a lot of other mentally ill people, when you have a, a drastic change in your life, such as moving, you know, relocating to college, it's, it is usually a catalyst for your, a flare in your mental illness. So going to college, having my life turned upside down, triggered a full-blown manic episode. So now I feel like I'm on top of the world. Mind you, I just got out of high school where, you know, you go to school with the same four years with the people that you've known since kindergarten and they already know you and if they like you, they like you and if they don't like you, they don't like you. So now there's a whole group of people that I can, you know, branch out and introduce myself to, whole new pool of you know, people to look at to date. Um, And I ended up meeting this guy who was five years older than me. And 17, so 18 might be the legal age, right? And 17, I was on the border. I turned 18 while I was at school. But I'll tell you, 18-year-olds, you're still a child. Mentally, you don't turn 18. And all of a sudden, it's like, I'm an adult. no. You are still a child. I was very much still a child. I was very immature. Um, I, I thought that I knew everything. So I'm in this full-blown manic episode, away at college, not taking my medication. Very easy to tune my mother out when she's calling me saying, oh, did you pick up your prescription? Um, I'm having, you know, I'm, I entered college. Let me back up. So I wasn't getting the supervision that I was at home. And I came to college very naive, very sheltered. I didn't, I didn't go to parties. I didn't drink. I hung out with very nerdy people. And my experience in high school and for my whole life, very sheltered. I get to college and I want to experiment. I want to be an adult. So I meet this guy who's five years older than me. And I was a virgin. He was not. And we started talking. I really, really liked him. And at some point, he was like, well, if you don't have sex with me, I can't see you anymore. And Manic Brianna, who's now like, oh, okay, well, that's a simple fix. And I, you know, I remember being in his dorm room and he said that and I said fine well F it just let's just go right now and he was like okay and I wasn't expecting that so now I like oh oh no I'm I'm into I'm in I can't get out of this and there was there was no foreplay there was no preparation there was nothing um it was let's put on the condom let's go in and it was so uncomfortable and we were in the act and I was begging him, please stop, please. I don't want to do this anymore. Like get off of me. I, I, I changed my mind and he just kept saying to me, don't worry. You know, like just, we have to keep going. We have to keep going. And I was like, no, get off of me. I don't want this anymore. And it was so painful. And when he was done, uh, I was just bleeding everywhere because that's what happens when you're not, you know, Mm -hmm. when you, when you lose your virginity and you were not prepared for it at all in any way, shape, or form. Um, And so it was a really horrific experience for me. The next night, um, I go to his, or the next day, I go to his room and now I'm feeling very uncomfortable. Um, I'm sore and I just don't want to, I'm wearing baggy clothes, baggy sweatpants, a baggy sweatshirt, And I just, I curl up in his bed and I'm taking a nap. And he was playing Xbox. GTA 5 had just come out. And he moved his Xbox. And when he did that, it scratched the disc. He got real mad. And then proceeded while I'm sleeping to start undressing me. And just began having sex with me. So I kind of woke up in this stupor. Get off of me. I'm in pain. I don't want to do this. And he just kept going. Um, he finished and I was like, all right, I'm leaving. So I went back upstairs and I didn't feel comfortable telling any of my friends what was going on. Um, so I just kind of like let it go. And he didn't, you know, we just carried on with our relationship like that. So after that point, um, he would say really sweet things to me in order to convince me to come back. So I you know, after that experience, I just kind of, like, held it in, because I knew something was wrong. I knew that what happened was wrong. I just didn't, didn't know the extent of how wrong it was. Um, so him and I started up this relationship, and it was, it got to the point of me where being manic, I was, I was also very hypersexual, um, and part of me avoiding, Being assaulted by him again was offering myself up at any possible given opportunity because I would rather me say, okay, okay, here it is, rather than him take it by force. So during that time when we were together, um, there were just, we were constantly on and off. There's a lot of fighting. There was one day where I don't remember and this is part of the PTSD where things kind of come back in, you have like memory amnesia and you'll remember very weird, specific things that happen, like smells, tastes. Um, But I have one like very vivid memory where we had gotten into a fight and I, he chased me out of his room and down the hall, one of my friends uh, lived literally a few doors down. I ran into her room and I locked the door and she's like, Brianna, what are you doing? And the next thing you know, he's banging down the door. And I mean, if you've dormed in a college dorm, those doors could survive a nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. Like, those are heavy doors. I really thought he was going to knock it off the hinges. He's screaming and pounding on the door. And I'm in her bed, like, under the covers shaking. And she's just yelling at him because she's like a spitfire. And she's like, get away from her. Leave her alone. Um, and eventually he did leave. But no, neither of the ra's on the floor ever said anything kind of just ignored it and so i'm laying in her bed and she was like Brie you can't go back to him" and i was like "i have to" and she's like she was the first person to ever say no you don't the first person who witnessed what i was going through and said no you don't and i had other people who saw what he was saying to me and knew what he was doing and being manipulative And everyone was just like, oh, you know, it's okay. Give him a second chance. She was the first person to say, you don't have to go back if you don't want to. And I remember saying to her, if I don't go back, he will find me and he will make my life hell. He will not let go. And he wouldn't. Um, So that was a very defining moment. When I came home for Thanksgiving break um all of our high school friends got together and me and my fiance were friends in high school and I had a huge crush on him senior year and I constantly asked him out and he constantly told me no um because (laughs) he was he was just this awkward, nerdy, didn't talk to girls person and that's what I loved about him. Um he was so intelligent and I always felt so inferior because he was so smart and he was, you know, top of our class and all this jazz. Um, but I had come home and I still really liked him. And I remember we're sitting on his couch in his living room. He had his arm around me. He kissed me on the cheek and I just wanted to like melt into him and I wanted to like kiss him, like be passionate and and loving. And he was like, you're in a relationship. And at that point I realized like being around my friends and, and sitting with him and realizing, no, this is what a relationship should feel like, Mm -hmm. where I feel safe with you, where I don't feel safe when I'm with him. Um, and so after Thanksgiving break, I remember being on campus and I called my mom and I said, Hey, um, what if I just came home and went to Suffolk for a semester? And she's, she's so confused. She's like, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, I just feel like maybe I need a break. You know, I don't know. What if I just came home and then like, I could go back next fall and she's talking to me, talking to me. And then she goes, Brianna, where are you? And I ended up being in front of the registrar's office. I had no intent on going there. My I, my feet just kind of carried me there. And she was like, all right, let me call Suffolk. Let's start this process. So I left. Um, I decided to do the transfer. When I made that decision, I did not tell my boyfriend at the time, if you want to call him that. I kept it very hush hush nobody knew up until about a week before Christmas break when I would have to pack everything everything up and leave I finally told him I think two or three days before specifically because I was so afraid of his reaction and he wasn't physically violent but he was emotionally manipulative which sometimes I if I thought back, especially my thought process at that time was I'd rather you just hit me than make me feel like absolute crap.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, a bruise will heal. Emotional manipulation would not. Now today, I don't want you to do any of those things. Neither of them are right. There is no better of the two evils in my opinion. Um, but 18 year old Brianna would have disagreed. So I wait a few days Um, before I tell him. So moving day for me to move out comes, and my dad, who is, to give you an image, he's six foot four. He just, he just, when he walks into a room, he just takes up space. Like, he has a big personality. He's just a generally, like, a big guy. My dad is awesome, and so he comes in we pack up all my stuff which somehow I ended up with more stuff than when I left to go there and I had a lot of stuff to begin with so he had a, a this expedition and we we packed it out you couldn't see out the rear view mirror it was insane and uh he said oh where is your boyfriend he didn't you know he's not gonna say goodbye and I didn't want to tell him like oh he I told him you're coming to pick me up and he's scared out of his mind because you know he's <laughs> that's running a risk. Like my dad would murder for his children. I have no doubt about that. Um, So I said, no, we said our goodbyes last night. Um, It's just, it's too hard for him. You know, I just want to leave. So he's like, all right. So we get in the car, we're leaving Oswego. We're on the highway, but we're still kind of in the town. And we were talking about my boyfriend at the time. And I had said, oh yeah, you know, the other night, you know, and he grabbed me and he, like, twisted my arm. And my dad, we're doing, like, 80 miles an hour on the highway. And he slams on the brake. And all the stuff in the back goes, like, flying forward. And thank God no one was, like, around us. And he whips his head about it, And he said, he did what to you? And in my brain, I'm like, oh, my God. He's going to turn around. He's going to kill him. He's going to turn around. We're going to turn this car around. He's going to kill him. So instantaneously, I was like, oh, no, 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 We were just, we were joking. We were roughhousing. We were playing. He didn't actually hurt me. And he's like, oh, good. Like, you know." Brianna no one gets to hurt you like no one puts their hands on you uh you know all this stuff and I was just like yeah okay uh uh-huh yep totally right and I was just petrified um I wasn't expecting him to be protective which I know doesn't make sense I know that he would be but I just being in such a negative situation you start to believe that nobody cares about you
0: Mm -hmm.
1: even your parents um so I end up coming home, we unload all my stuff. I am now home on Christmas break. Uh and my now ex-boyfriend, cuz I tried to break up with him, is incessant. He is at this point I would even consider it stalking. Um he, I left my phone charger and something else like in his room and I said, "Would you mail it to me? I'll send you the money." Just I just want my stuff. I want to end this. And in that he wrote me like a six-page love letter and in it was just you know I can go back and I can read it today and I can see that it was just complete gaslighting the whole mm-hmm. thing um and he would constantly text me he would snapchat me he would try and contact me through any mode of social media possible and I was just I remember there was one night and this is the story of how I got into the hospital I'm still not taking my medication. Uh, the level or the dosage of medication that I'm on, you can't just restart it. You have to start gradually in increments going up. So I'm now home. I'm not taking my medication. The only thing I had was Xanax to use as needed. And Xanax is an anti-anxiety medication. So He's talking to me, talking to me, you know, really just working me up, gaslighting. I'm hysterical crying. I'm trying to ignore him. He's relentless. So I'm like, you know what? I'll take a Xanax. So I take one. I wait five or ten minutes. It's not kicking in. I take another one. I wait a few minutes. It's not kicking in. I take another one. And then all of a sudden in my head, I'm like, well, I should just keep going. And after each pill, though, I would put the cat back on the bottle because I have a miniature dachshund and she will literally eat anything, anything. Mm -hmm. The only dog I've ever met that you could give her a pill and she'll swallow it. You don't need to put it in anything. (laughs) She is insane. So I was like, oh, my God, if I leave, if I if I pass out, if I die, I don't want my dog to die. So I'll cap it. After I think I got to seven or eight pills, I was so i was so stoned. I didn't have the motor coordination to open the pill bottle. So I couldn't take anymore. And my ex-boyfriend had called me and I had picked up the phone and I sounded like I wasn't in the right mindset. You could hear it. I had delayed motor. Um, I was just not even in reality. And he ended up messaging my fiance, who was my friend at the time, and saying, you need to go to Brianna. Something's wrong. I'm worried about her. Which is probably the nicest thing he has ever done for me. Uh, But my heat ends up convincing me to go to the front door and unlock the front door and I did that and then somehow I made it back to my bed and then after that I have no memory at all I don't remember the experience and like at all from what my fiance his brother and our friend had showed up they were playing hockey and they all came together they found me in my bed basically unconscious they Sort of helped me stumble to my living room where I kind of fell in the hallway because I couldn't even hold myself up. Uh, my fiance's brother, my brother in law, called poison control to determine whether or not I needed like immediate medical attention. And poison control said, No, she should be okay because I was still in and out, like I could talk to you. Um, and they're like, No, she's fine. So they call my mom. My mom comes home. They again get in the car, go to Mather. Um, and I had the best sleep of my life. I was out cold. I have very hazy images like I know. I remember my dad being there. I remember my aunt and uncle coming in. I remember that my brother-in-law and my friend and my fiance had stayed there. Um, my mom was obviously there the whole time. She never left. I don't think my dad ever left either. Um, and they ended up admitting me into inpatient. So, I'm 18. I go into the adult ward. And I know on a previous episode, um, someone had talked about what it's like in the child psych ward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not that much fun in the adult ward. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was the youngest one there. Everyone else was in their 40s and 50s. Um, So, I was just incredibly out of place. Uh, I felt very uncomfortable being around other people who were severely mentally ill Because at the time, I didn't see myself as severely mentally ill. Mm
2: -hmm. Even
1: though I just tried to commit suicide, I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. So, I'm in there. I spent Christmas Eve and Christmas in there. I was released on New Year's Eve, and I went to a friend's house that night because I didn't want people to think or to know, get suspicious, that I was in the hospital. While I was in the hospital, my fiancé his brother and our friend did come and visit me um which I was like so appreciative of because again he's still just my friend but I'm in love with him um <laughs> but when I got out of the hospital I remember my mom took me to McDonald's when McDonald's was still alive and well in Port Jefferson um and we were down port We got food and we're sitting in the car. I had just gotten my cell phone back. And the first thing I did is I turned to my mom and I said, I have to tell my ex-boyfriend that I'm okay. And she said, why? Why does he deserve to know? And I said, because he has to know. So even after spending two weeks in the hospital where he essentially helped put me there, I was still so, so just drowning in him that I had to give him that update I had to talk to him um and he continued we kind of continued that cycle um for a few months and it stopped in so that was all in December it stopped in February because that's when me and my fiance started dating and at that point he made it very clear um let me back up hold on sometime in January we would go for car rides, me, my fiancé, and his brother, and we would just talk about life, and it came up about what kind of got me in a hospital and why would I want to take so much medication. And I had said, I, I was raped. That's I was sexually assaulted. I was in a very abusive relationship, and I didn't want to live anymore because I just wanted to get away from him. Hearing that, the two of them were just distraught. They were the first people that I told. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't talk about it in the hospital. None of my friends knew. They were the first people that I told. And so they also knew, though, that I was still talking to him. When my fiancé and I got together and started dating, one of the stipulations was you have to cut contact. If we're going to be together, you cannot hold on to him. It's not healthy. This is not a relationship. you can't do that to yourself anymore, and so I stopped. There were times where I was talking to him in secret, and then I realized, No, that's not what I want, this is what I want. And without that push in that direction, I would not have left him and cut all contact. Recently, maybe a month ago, I found him on social media and I added him. I am now. I don't even know how long ago was that. 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, It's seven years. Seven years later, I reached out for my own purposes of closure. I don't suggest this to people. This was what was appropriate for me. Do not do this. Do not. But I reached out to him, and I said, um, I want to talk about us and what happened and he was like all right where do you want to start and I said well you raped me and he was just like no I didn't and I said yes you you did I asked you to stop you kept going I was sleeping and you proceeded to just have sex with me without my consent while I'm sleeping that is rape and of course we're text you know we're dming through twitter so he's not going to give a you know a written confirmation of any of this which i understood mm-hmm. and i told him look i'm not asking you to to say anything i don't want anything from you i need you to know though that this is what happened and he genuinely did not know and did not realize what he did and i kind of believe that but I also kind of don't so I feel better just sort of getting it out there Um, but from talking to him I kind of slipped back into that mindset because as I'm telling him this he was like oh my god I feel terrible I'm so depressed this is such a hit I called out of work and he's like emotionally leaning on me and I'm consoling him for confronting him about him raping me and then it kind of dawned on me like Brianna what are you doing and I sent him a message, and I was like, you know what? This isn't my fault. I don't feel bad for making you feel bad because you made me feel bad for the last seven years. So good luck with that. Bye. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I haven't talked to him since. So moral of the story, don't reach out to your abusers ju- unless, you know, it's a court thing, whatever. you, If it's your personal thing, I don't suggest it.
0: So that was That's a lot to... Tour. Disclosed to us thank you for sharing I know that's not easy but I like what you said at the end of like oh I'm not asking you if you did this I'm telling you that you did this to me Um, Mm -hmm. and I I think that other people may need to hear that so thank you for sharing that with us Um, how how do you address your PTSD now you had talked a little bit about your the memories kind of fading um, but is that something that you also address with your current doctors along with your bipolar one?
1: Yeah, so I don't take medication for PTSD. It's really something that I address in therapy. Um, the after effects of the sexual trauma that I experienced so much now, there are still times where it affects me. So like, for example, if, if there's something that my fiance does that will just spark a a memory in my brain and I'll be like okay we have to stop like this is like I'm not okay Um, and obviously he's respectful of that when we first started our relationship it was very much I I would have this visceral reaction to trying to initiate intimacy of any kind Um, I was using sex almost like a bartering tool like oh okay well this is how I say thank you this is how I ask for something this is how I receive affirmation for myself And I went to therapy. I was in therapy in order to address those things and learn that when I'm in a nightmare or I'm having a flashback or a memory arises, how to ground myself in the reality of today and know that the partner that I'm with is a safe person to be around, that I'm safe in general and that no one's going to hurt me, that I'm in control of my situation and that I'm not. There's, there's no need to fear myself. Um, and just sort of learn these things and relearn how to live my life. So I don't take medication for it, but I've, I was in therapy. And I stopped therapy kind of after that happened. And I just sort of tucked the experience away in the back of my head. And then about two years ago... I was in one of my classes at school, and someone had said that you can, when you're working with a client as a social worker, you can only take your client as far as you've come in your life. So, if there's something unresolved with you, you will not be able to help someone else if you don't deal with it yourself. And then something in my brain clicked and said, Okay, we need to go back. We need to work through this. We really need to process this and take care of ourselves. If this is something we truly want to do, is to help other people. We need to help ourselves. So I went back, found my current therapist that I see, and we did a lot of hard work. Talking about it all over again brought up it, like fresh wounds, like it just happened yesterday. I started having nightmares, I started having flashbacks. Um, I, you know, had to go through the process all over again. And it's almost like a grieving process. So there's, like, the five stages of grief. And now I'm at the point of, like, acceptance where I I have come to terms with this is what happened to me. It was an event that happened in my life. It doesn't consume me anymore. It doesn't define who I am. Um, but that I've come out in a better place, thankfully. For me, I view it as this thing, this horrific thing that happened to me. But I'm better for it. And that... Where do I want to go with this? I view it sort of as this thing that I've taken and turned from something that's traumatic against me. And hmm. there's a term in social work called post-traumatic growth. And it's basically that after something traumatic happens to you, you're able to grow and learn from it and, and sort of like bloom like a flower. And that's really what I did and that I was able to do with the love and support that I received from my family and from my you know therapist. I was able to come out of this experience on the other side and feel better for it. Not everyone has that. I'm very lucky that I was able to have that experience, um, but I've come to terms with it to an extent of where now I can come on a podcast and talk openly about the the traumatic events that I've been through (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. and it that's no easy task so uh great job seems like a weird thing to say but (laughs) I know know, right I know it's not easy to go through therapy and and talk about it so I'm I'm proud of you and I'm happy that you're coming on because you know you were inspired by someone else's episode, and then you'll probably inspire somebody else down the line, if not to talk to us, to talk to somebody else about it. So I think my last question that I have for you, for both either issues, is there anything that you brought up today is, what's something that you wish more people understood about your issues?
1: I, I'm gonna say that this is twofold. The first thing that I want people to understand well, maybe more than twofold. The first thing I want people to understand is that having a diagnosis of a serial, a serious mental illness such as bipolar disorder or um, some type of trauma disorder, uh, OCD, these are big, life-consuming disabilities. Like when I go to fill out a job application and it says, "Do you have any of this these disabilities?" By law, we can't discriminate. Bipolar disorder is on there, and I always check yes, I have a disability. It's not impossible to live a life that you want to live. If you have a support system, if you're willing to get help and you're willing to seek help and take it seriously, you can come out and live a life that you want to live. I don't want to say normal. But you can have a quote unquote normal life. Um, not a lot of people have access to a support system and to proper medical care. So p- there are people out there that will struggle. I also want to stop the stigma that people with these se- serious mental illnesses are less than or that they're, you know, that they're frowned upon because I feel like um, oftentimes when. You think about someone with a serious mental illness, it's coupled with, like, a negative image of them. Like, a a person who's lazy or just this person who's crazy that you don't want to be around. Um, And that's not the case for everyone, you know? Um, The next part that I would say is, I really want people to stop using mental illness inappropriately. So, for example, the weather is not bipolar just because you're feeling anxious doesn't mean you have an anxiety disorder. Just because, you know, you're, um, you know, oh, uh, I, I, I've heard people be like, oh my God, I have PTSD because I had like a bad experience. Like, oh, I went to that restaurant and they messed up my order. I have PTSD. I can't go back there. Like, no, that's not, Like, that's not funny. It's kind of offensive. I really hate when people say that and I go out of my way to correct people in those situations because it's just inconsiderate. I don't think a lot of people know that they're doing it, but, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I've also received reactions where I'll correct them and they'll be like, well, I don't know what the big deal is. And I'll say, okay, well, do you call people retarded? Mm Mm-hmm. It's kind of the similar thing that's a word that's really offensive to a community of people and so I'm asking you as part of a community that you're using as a you know whatever please don't say that Mm -hmm. Um, so there's that and I would also just like to say that it's okay to ask for help Um, being in the field that I am I still forget that it's okay to ask for help I, I feel like I have to be on top of my game all the time that I have to be perfect and together because otherwise I can't be there for the people in my life or the clients that I see and that's not the case so always feel free to reach out you know, you can tag me on social media and people want to reach out and share their stories or ask for resources or referrals I'd be happy to lead people in the right direction but seek help if you need it there's nothing wrong in saying that you can't do everything and that you need a little support
0: that's such good advice thank you for sharing all of that with us from both perspectives that you have i'm really grateful that you came on the show today uh ricky did you have any questions no questions really But topics? as
2: Kayla said Obviously this is Something that's not Easy to talk about And we're grateful That you took the time To speak to us about it um, Hopefully talking to us About it yeah, is I, As Kayla said I think it's valuable Because it could be Inspiring to someone else To feel What well, they want to talk about it In any format they feel Is constructive
0: Well thank you again For coming on our show tonight
1: No I really appreciate The sick invite It has been Wonderful being here Woo! <laughs> Yay! <laughs>